0: Zero is accounting software that has all the features small business owners need to run a business successfully. To help ensure business success, Xero also partners directly with accounting and bookkeeping firms, giving them a suite of tools and training to become Xero experts to help them and to confidently advise businesses. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, Zero, later in the episode. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode... Visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode.
1: This is Oh My Fraud, a true crime podcast where crooks bury treasure instead of bodies. I'm Caleb Newquist. And I'm Greg Kite. Hey Greg, have you ever been in business with a family member?
0: Well, hey Caleb, no, I haven't. Uh, never, never been in, in business. I uh, the closest I've been. My mom owned a drugstore in the Seattle area when I was in my teens and in my twenties. Uh, yep. So I, and I worked for it, it, the the drugstore was open for about ten years, and I worked for her for most of those ten years. But I I wasn't uh, part of the ownership as a teen and early twenty something. And if the opportunity did come up to to be in a family-owned business of any kind, I would. I think I would want to avoid it. Uh, yeah. If for if for no other reason than the "don't shit where you eat" principle <laughs> of you, you know. <laughs> wait, it, wait. I need maybe spell that out a little
1: bit. Where it, do you it, do? do, do the, is the family the shit or is the family the eating?
0: The family's where I. Well, yeah. No, the family's where I eat and the business would be where i should be where where someone would be shitting oh and yeah okay so that's just because it never i just can't i've seen too many partnerships go too poorly to think that there's going to be any other any other outcome yeah sure yeah so what what about you you uh, yeah, I
1: tried it once, uh, with my dad and my brother, uh, for a brief period of time, we acquired a, a building in my hometown, uh commercial residential, um, oh, okay. yeah, you know, we did some, we did some improvements, tried being landlords, you know, that kind of thing and results were mixed <laughs>
0: to say the okay. least. I think there was some misunders mixed, mixed to say the mixed to say the least would what- <laughs> What is that? Yeah, I mean mixed maybe I'm over or they're not.
1: <laughs> okay, they were mixed. They were de- they're, they're okay. definitely mixed. I think there was some misunderstandings in terms of like what people expected, who who would be doing what and um yeah. and and who who bore what responsibility. I mean, I was living in New York at the time. My brother was living, I believe in Boulder, Colorado at the time. My dad was still in our hometown. So like he was doing a lot of the hands on work. My brother and yeah. I, you know, we the three of us would talk about stuff and you know, it just wasn't I think there was some resentment that built up over time on the part of my dad since we weren't as directly involved. Um, right. even though it, it would have been very difficult since we did not live where the building yeah. was. Yeah. So, you know, those kinds of things. And then, you know, the family dynamic, you know, you think, oh, it's easy because you trust these people, but yeah. like communication isn't always super clear because families have yeah. a tendency to, at least I shouldn't say all families, but like, you know, code, passive aggressiveness, whatever, Sure. <laughs> like just a lot of things where you're just kind of like, where it isn't really conducive to being effective. Like, cause you have all the family baggage, whether yeah. you l- like it or not. Like it's hard, I think for families to check their baggage at the door a lot of times. And I think that's probably what happened to us. So yeah, that, anyway, we, we sold sense. the af- Yeah. So after a few years, we sold the building. We made a small profit. Very meh, you know, very meh And, yeah. and at the end of it, I was like, Oh, I'm not doing that again. That's yeah. <laughs> I tried that. <laughs> right. Not going to, not going right. to do that again.
0: But I'd have to say, uh, yeah, the fact that you could say that you all made a small profit, you know, might not have been worth what you put into it. But that's, I think, that's a win for, based on what you described, that yeah, that you guys didn't lose your shirts on it. So we did not a big win. And and I get it. That I think another thing with family businesses too, is you kind of go, hey, we're all family. We'll figure it out as we go instead yeah. of doing you don't do I think there's a tendency to not do as much of the like business planning and org chart creation and things like that that are necessary right. for especially their their communication tools really at the bottom line which is what you said was part of the part of the problem so um yep so wh- how did so I'm I'm interested just just to get a feel of how this like affected your uh, relationship with your father and your brother, were you yeah. and your dad and your brother close when you started the venture? Cause my, again, just based on my own personal experiences and biases, I'm assuming you hate each other now. So did you start off <laughs> good and end bad? I mean, hate's a
1: strong word. Uh, and no, it's we a don't smelly word. <laughs> okay. Oh, good. Very um, good. I, like I said, I think there was, I think there was, I think we all were experiencing some resentment. But it didn't. It. I wouldn't say it got to the point where it was like severe animosity. It just got to the point where my dad, my my dad was resentful enough that he was just fed up, and that he wanted that he was tired of doing all the on the ground work, and we were not contributing to that. I did Mm -hmm. travel back there once and spent a weekend doing work with him, and I think my brother did did something similar on an occasion or two. But he was doing the lion's share of like the physical work and that and he was and he he thought that was unfair. And and so he just wanted to be done with it. And so um, that's kind of when we started moving in the direction of just like selling the property. Um, Yeah. So there was not like when it was done. I think my dad was relieved. So then he didn't have to resent us
0: anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Gotcha. I, I also yeah. have a theory about business in general that, uh, like for oh. instance, I'm, I am doing, uh, so my, my, another one of my side hustles is my comedy church, uh, comedy show and me yeah. and the co-host and our musical director, we're all, we're all a third, a third, a third partners in this, in this thing. And I've told them that we will all be doing an equal amount of work once all three of us, at the same time feels like we're doing most of the work. So once everybody yes. feels like they're doing most of the work, that's when everybody's doing the exact same amount of work. So yeah. it's, it's sort of the re- equal resentment uh, is really what the goal. That feels I equitable. Think. That and feels equitable. It, yeah, yeah. And that that's that, you might not know that it's equal resentment, but if if a third party can verify that it is, then I think you've really nailed it. That's an guys, area of assurance. So it's,
1: that's, a, that's a very underrated and underappreciated <laughs> area of assurance. May I it just is. add that? It is. For the auditors in the audience. So anyway. Yeah. Um, I'm sh-
0: sorry. I'm sure that the AICPA will come up with an accreditation for it. And uh, we're bringing all this up because in today's episode, uh, we're talking all about a family business that has weathered some ups and downs. Uh, It's the Koss Corporation. And specifically, we're going to be talking about how one employee exploited the company's family atmosphere. In 1958,
1: John C. Koss was running a Milwaukee-based company he founded that rented TVs to hospitals. Uh, That same year, he and his friend, an engineer named Martin Lang developed a portable stereo phonograph player a quote-unquote
0: private listening station is what they called it and and i was wondering that so that is my daughter bought like a vintage record player that basically Mm -hmm. it looks like a suitcase but when you open it up it's actually a record player inside it is that is that sort of what we're talking about with the portable stereo phonograph i
1: think so the big feature though that made this thing the cost version of this such a hit at the time was what they called a privacy switch that allowed listeners to hear the music by plugging into stereo phones so i don't know if your daughter's vintage equipment has that kind of mechanism on it but that's the thing that made the Koss this cost version so kind of pioneering and kind of groundbreaking gotcha yeah that makes sense do you kn- do you know if it has this thing
0: I, I don't. I just know that she has record player that she, I think, is one of those things where she bought it because she thought it's cool. And I think she never, ever uses
1: it. So. Perfect. So, but
0: it is cool. She's not wrong. Yeah. But
1: up until the time that they released this thing, so they released this at a Wisconsin audio show. And at the time, headphones were mostly used for communication, like telephone operators, pilots, and shortwave radio. Um, those headphones. We're not stereophonic. So in order to avoid confusion with that type of equipment, the product was formally known as stereophones instead of headphones. But like these days, they're just headphones. Like you and I are wearing headphones right now. We don't right. call them stereophones. Yeah. But these are effectively the, you know, I guess the um, the progeny of this original, the original stereophones that were invented by John C. Koss and this guy Martin yeah.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And it did seem like there was almost like a stigma in this cuz we're talking about I mean the late 60s. People are still, you know, it, this is probably Korea 50s. late 50s. So I, I can't mm-hmm. I don't remember when the Korean War started, but we're we're probably between World War 2 and the Korean War and people think of headphones as, as staticky and difficult, you know, but, Not not very dynamic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. So...
1: Yeah, it makes me think of the movie Memphis Belle. Do you remember that movie? I don't remember that movie. It was a World War II movie. Uh, It was about some bomber. It was about a crew on a a big bombing plane, you know? Yeah. And they, of course, the pilot and the co-pilot, they were wearing... I mean, they all had headsets so they could hear each other yeah. throughout the plane. Yeah. But yeah, very statically and low quality. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, you know, people screaming when their planes get shot right. down. So this is a big you damn know. deal what they made. A very, I think so. Very big deal. And so over the next couple of decades, Koss was like the dominant player in stereophonic headphones for personal listening. And they were known for making a, a quality product and they serviced this high-end market. So people that were really into music. And so they... Yeah. They, I think, one of the first celebrity endorsements they got was Tony Bennett, so a, a really big deal. And they actually have some really great on their website, on the cost website, they have great old photos of those early days, including you know people that were using them. And so, if you're into that stuff, it's kind of fun. Um, and and so, like when foreign when foreign competitors like started entering the the U.S. market with cheaper headphones, cost raised their prices, and that it worked. Like people recognized them that you know kind of for you pay you, you get what you pay for right and yeah sidebar we've talked about this over the years many many times in terms of like pricing and value and the perception that people have about that thing and yeah. so these the, the 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 cost folks they 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 knew what they were doing yeah at the time and uh they weren't afraid to raise their prices when, right when when it was called for
0: yeah because price a high price signals high value but you can't maintain that high price if your product is actually shitty. So that's right. Yeah, it's kind that's of right. it goes it goes both ways, and they were able to back that up clearly over yep. the over the decades that they've been around.
1: Indeed. So Koss uh, became a public company in 1967 with sales around a million dollars, and this grew to about 25 million in the late 70s. And up until this point, John Koss had built. The company with no formal business training, and so that's that's pretty impressive for yeah. a guy. Uh, again, if you if you read on their the history of the website, like he was a he was a musician and he was a uh, he 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 had a big band. Like that's how he kind he was kind he was very much into music and audio, and so he he didn't he didn't go to business school. I don't even think he had a college education, and so
0: like to be able to build a business like this uh, to that scale is pretty impressive yeah and and my my impression from the reading i did was that he was because because he was a musician because he did have a band he was also very much an audiophile and he loved he loved the the listening to music so part of this was it was a bit of a passion project for him to to create what he created because he just wanted stuff that was great for doing what he wanted to do and luckily enough there was there was a a a big group of people who were right there with him and ready to pay for what he was, what he was making. Yep.
1: But around this time in the late seventies, the company's growth was slowing down. And this is when the company, John cost specifically, he, he, they, they brought in a new president, a guy by the name of James D Dodson and cost knew Dodson, who was a, he was a big eight. It was then big eight accountant, By training, Uh, he knew him from a local business organization and Dotson had experience running divisions at a couple of big companies and John Koss liked his ideas about repositioning Koss, the company, and he thought his experience as a manager would help expand and grow the business into new markets. And he also thought that he would be a great mentor for his two sons, John Koss Jr. and Michael Koss, who are now part of the business. So Dodson took the role of president and chief operating officer in 1979, and he signed a five, five-year contract. And almost immediately, he started building out more sophisticated systems and processes to accommodate the company's move into some new products. Uh, these changes had other impacts on the business too. Koss was very much losing the family feel that John Koss had always kind of instilled throughout the company. Dodson's style was very top down and he was just not as visible,
0: I think, to the rank and file employees of the company. Right. And and I think, again, from the reading I did, it sounded like John Koss was, he was uh, ambivalent about that. Where on the one hand he said, yeah, this is not the way that I would do it. And there was some complaints from some very, you know, loyal people within Koss so, yeah. So on the one hand he was going, yeah, this isn't the way I do it, but he had, he had kind of, I mean, if I don't know if you'd call it an inferiority complex, but a little bit of that where he was like, oh, and this guy has been trained. He went to, yeah, you know, a lot of people who haven't, who are great business people who don't have the formal education when they compare themselves to people with the formal education, they love to cut their own legs out from underneath him and go, I don't know what I'm talking about. This guy's right. the guy who knows it. So let him do it. So he, he was, and he was very much that where He he's like, this isn't my way. This is his way. And he knows the right way to do it. So we're going to, we're going to stay the course and and keep going with Dodson. Yeah, very much so.
1: Under costs, the company ran very lean. They almost had no debt, but with Dodson, things were different. He opened unsecured lines of credit to help finance part of the expansion and as consumer electronics tastes started to change in the early 1980s, the new products from Koss failed to deliver. Most notably in the research that we did, uh, the Koss music box was the big, uh, it was competing with the, at the time, the Sony Walkman, which I don't know, Greg, I'm sure you had a Walkman. I had a Walkman. I, I did, I did have not a have a Walkman. I did not
0: have a cost music box. And neither did I I didn't even know <laughs> of a cost music box. I looked at right. a picture of a cost music box and it looks ridiculous. It,
1: it, it they are out there. It, like you can they're very vintage cost yeah. music boxes. You can buy them on eBay. Yeah, um and, and the ones I the ones I saw did,
0: were not I mean when I think of a Walkman I think of one that plays cassette tapes. The the cost yeah. music boxes were just radios. So just, oh, just okay. portable radios.
1: Okay, I did not pick up on that. That's so. That's okay.
0: what I. That's what I saw. I, there may be later models that did come out with cassette players as well, but the ones I saw were just AM/FM radio with headphones and batteries. Gotcha.
1: So, you know, with the kind of the failure of the cost music box, by the end of 1984, uh, Dodson's contract was ended or uh, had ended. His contract ended, and. Cost was headed for bankruptcy. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by Xero. If you love listening to this podcast, you've learned that systems and processes could have prevented many of the frauds we've discussed. Having an accounting system like Zero can help a business create the processes it needs so that it can avoid becoming a future Oh My Fraud episode. Xero lets you set up multiple users, each with their own login and password, so you can accurately assign the proper access to each user. When it comes to accounts payable, Xero pushes all bills through a built-in approval process. Zero's expense management tools ensure that employees only get reimbursed for approved expenses. And because Xero connects directly to banks, you can reconcile and match transactions daily to ensure that any money coming and leaving the bank accounts is what you expected. To become a zero partner and gain access to free tools, benefits, and rewards for your practice, head over to omifraud.promo slash zero. That's omifraud.promo forward slash
0: So, costs filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy not one day, not two days, but four days before Christmas 1984. And because I, I needed to look this up just to make sure that I knew exactly what I was talking about. So there's yeah. th- the two main types of bankruptcy that we're aware of is Chapter 7 and Chapter yes. 11. Chapter 7 is where you Tell just, us the difference, uh, Greg. I'd, yes. I w- well, I had to figure it out myself. So this was my oh. little research project. So Chapter 7 is where you give up and you're just like, we're over our head. We're not going to be able to dig ourselves out. So, hey- uh, courts just sell off all of our shit and pay off the people that we owe money to as best you can see you later chapter yep. 11 is where you still got some fight in you so you reorganize and i was like going okay I, I knew that chapter 11 was reorganization but i was also like what does that mean and generally under chapter 11 bankruptcy it means you're you're cutting expenses, you're selling mm-hmm. some of your assets that that are maybe not part of your core business that you can get rid of and you're renegotiating terms with your creditors. And yeah. I was I was thinking about all that stuff and I go you can do all that without being in bankruptcy. Yep. <laughs> but but my understanding with chapter 11 is that like you can go to your bank and go hey we Need to renegotiate these terms, and they can go, Yeah, yeah, no, uh, yeah, they don't have to, yeah. But then when you have a chapter 11 bankruptcy, you go in and go, Hey, we ch- filed for chapter 11 bankruptcy, so maybe you're gonna want to renegotiate our terms now. And and they, yeah, they do, or they're more likely,
1: yeah, because to- correct me if I'm wrong because you did the research into this bit, but bankruptcy is overseen by a court. Like bankruptcy court is its own thing. It isn't like, it isn't like law and order kind of court. Like bankruptcy court is its own special little place where people go in there and they kind of battle it out where you go in there and you say, Hey, uh sorry, we all we owe all this money, but we think we can figure it out, and their creditors are like, bullshit, sell all your stuff and <laughs> yeah. give us what you owe us. And the judge is like, mm, let me just let me be the one who decides, yeah. right?" Yeah. But but the judges are pretty tough. Like they they kind of if the the judges mediate, essentially they adjudicate, right? Yeah. They adjudicate how the the bankruptcy should proceed so that yes. the creditors get something. And the, the petitioner still has a chance to, to actually reorganize and, and emerge from bankruptcy.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. So that's kind of the two, the two sides of the sword that I, as I understand it, for Chapter 11 bankruptcy is that the court is giving you some space as a company yeah. to try to reorganize. But also, it, it sounds like pretty much every move that you're making, you have to submit it to the court for approval. So, yes. it's very it, they, they the oversight role in chapter 11 sounds onerous to me. I don't know how the they must have a lot of judges working on chapter 11 stuff if every step you make has to be, you know, checked off by the by the judge who's in charge of that. But but yeah, that's that's basically how it goes and it is a pain in the ass. And the other thing that I found is that only about 5% of companies that file chapter 11 actually emerge from chapter 11 and you know mm. like basically recover from their close call with bankruptcy so it's not a, a great yeah
1: no, your chances aren't good
0: no not at all and john Koss knew that as he was as he when he filed for chapter 11 he was like this is not this is not a, a slam dunk we're not coming back from this unless we make some drastic changes and he did some drastic changes in the midst of that bankruptcy he's he and his wife sold their their you know, sounds like yep. mansion uh if not a mansion just a very beautiful large house that they had and they moved into an apartment so mm-hmm. that that shows i feel like if anything that shows the entrepreneurial spirit and that shows the response the personal responsibility that he took that i, I think all business owners should take where it's like i'm not I'm not messing around with this. I'm taking this very seriously. So we are moving into a a. It said like a, a little apartment that overlooked a freeway from like a home that overlooked a river. So that, but also great move on his part because he has to do this while he's laying off a lot of his staff and he's asking other parts of his staff to take huge. Uh, salary cuts and things like this and you don't want to take a salary cut if your boss is still living in his mansion you're going to take a pay cut if if he moved from his mansion to an apartment so overlooking a freeway overlooking a freeway so, so yeah. good on him he was the guy like I said he was the real deal and he I, I'm going to say this guy was a, a exemplary entrepreneur and mm-hmm. he, it's small I mean I don't know if you'd call his operation a small business but in terms of like a family run business he was yep. he was doing it and they they also like i said they cut a lot of costs they they returned costs to its lean operation operations that they had been practicing prior to Dodson coming on board and it was also during this time that Koss and the Koss family were like we can't trust any of these any of these outsiders if you're not in the family, you're an enemy, and I mean it. Maybe wasn't quite that that, that drastic, but I, I bet you there was a little bit of that where it's like we can only trust us, and so they they kind of went back into this kind. I mean, I again, it might be a little bit over dramatic way to say it, but kind of an isolationist sort of way to run the company. We're, we're going to sure. do it the way that's worked for us in the past. Damn everybody else because we thought they were smarter than us, and they almost ruined us. So. Uh, so that's where th- that's where they took the company and there was a, a an article in 1988 in Inc magazine that was basically a, a chronicle of the company's history. And in that uh, article, John Cost Jr. so not John Cost, the guy who started the company, not the one who was uh, at the helm through the chapter of bankruptcy, but one of his two sons that was w- that he was grooming to take over the business was quoted as saying, quote the family was an island it was us against the world and his brother michael also said we all knew that this was the only group we could confide in
1: on december 17th 1985 cost corporation defied the odds and emerged from bankruptcy three days short of a year from the original filing The company bounced back and by 1987, it was on solid footing again. From that same Inc. article, Michael Koss, uh, in regard, he was speaking about Dotson, the guy that kind of like steered, you know, steered the family company wrong. Yeah. And the thing that Michael Koss said that he learned from that guy was, quote, what not to do. People were so scared to make mistakes and so tired of filling out forms. It was boring and demeaning. I know now what it takes to make this a bigger company. It takes a handful of dedicated people.
0: Michael Koss, the son of the founder, John Koss, became CEO of the company, in 1991, and a short, short time after that, he hired Sujata Su Sachdava as vice president of finance and the company's principal accounting officer, and he hired her in 1992. This was a big move, and she quickly became indispensable to Koss, and basically was considered part of the family. Uh, and according to this article we found in Milwaukee Magazine, Sue, uh, as she was known, got star treatment from Koss when Sachdava's husband got a fellowship in Houston because he was a he was a doctor, so he got a fellowship in Houston in 1993. So Michael Koss allowed Sue to live in Houston and telecommute from Houston back in. The early nineties, I mean, now we go, yeah, telecommute from Houston. In in ninety-three, what's that, thirty years no ago? No way. That was Nobody's no, doing that. Hell no. hell no. What are you talking about? We don't even have sun hurdles. How can we how can we do that? And so and and the crazy thing is, so so they were in they were the, the move to Houston was just a short term move, but after she moved back to the Milwaukee area, she continued to telecommute for more than ten years where she was at least Two days a week working from home, again un- unprecedented uh, in the in the nineties, uh, especially for someone who was in a basically a C suite position. She wasn't she wasn't the CFO. She was the head of finance, uh, yeah. de the, facto CFO. But yeah, de facto CFO, and we'll get into that mm-hmm. a little bit in, in in a minute. The other thing that was interesting is her relationship with Michael, the CEO, seemed very close. Uh, when Michael's daughter got pregnant, it was Sue who hosted the baby shower in Sue's home for the CEO's kid. And when uh, when Michael Koss' son was stricken with Crohn's disease, Sue helped to orchestrate a fashion show uh, to raise money for the research for Crohn's disease to help out the this kid. And my understanding is Crohn's disease is just where you you're just you shit all day long and so a fashion show something where you can find new outfits is probably helpful for, some, for someone has a disease where they just shit their pants all all the time um but but even further here's this is the this is the icing on the cake for this for this fundraiser is it's a fashion show and people weren't weren't like donating stuff. They weren't buying. I think the idea was: here's a fashion show. You can buy this outfit. Who wants to buy this outfit? And people weren't buying to the extent that that Sue had wanted. So she just personally bought everything that wasn't bought by anything else. And as a result, the event was a success, and it was all to benefit the CEO's kid. That's nice. It's amazing. Yeah, that's nice. it, It is, and. And it was her relationship with Michael, uh, according to some other accounts, I think it was, it was in the same Milwaukee magazine article that I read it is Mm -hmm. that she was, she was close with Michael to the point where she would, she would, uh, even though he was the CEO, like clearly Mm -hmm. her boss, like unequivocally her boss. And he'd be like, where are those reports? And she'll be like, Hey, listen, I'll get to him when I get to him. (laughs) lay off me and is and people just be like holy shit you can talk like that to your boss but again it's because this was like a fan they were running it again like a family yeah. business and she right. she had she had gained their trust she had gained an inside position into the cost family so that's i think that i mean some people say well that's that's her showing belligerence and maybe that's a red flag i say that that's probably even more an indication that this is a family business and she's accepted. So Mm -hmm. that she has the trust that she has the trust that she, she's, she's in, she's providing an invaluable service for the company with what she does. So, uh, so then the story continues that throughout the two thousands, Sue and her husband Ramesh, uh, were seen as prominent, upstanding members of the milwaukee community sue like we said was the de facto cfo at cost and Ramesh, like we had said was was a prominent doctor he was a he was a pediatric physician uh but check this out not only was a pediatric physician he also had a law degree and an mba so the dude was killing it he with, wanted all the degrees yeah his, all the degrees yeah his resume is better than yours just i mean i don't care who you are <laughs> his resume is better than yours uh Sue especially liked to keep up appearances at charity events. And she was all about her charity events. She was rubbing elbows with Milwaukee's wealthiest and most notable citizens. She was very glamorous. She was always dressed impeccably. And again, her her husband's resume is better than yours. And her outfit is also better than yours. It doesn't matter what your <laughs> outfit was. Hers, hers yeah. is better than yours. And she she was involved in tons of charities. She coordinated tons of charitable events, and she would contribute a lot of money to whatever the good cause was. And her 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 playbook very often was similar to what she did for the mm-hmm. uh, for the fashion show to prevent Crohn's disease. Where if if the charitable event was going ba- wasn't going up to her expectations. She'd just sweep in and go, "I'll buy all of it." It's good you made your money. You're welcome next event. And she was generous with charities. She was also very generous with herself, Caleb, as you as you oh. well know from the reading. She was she was well-known well-known at many boutiques. She was kind of uh, she she was loved and hated, I think, by the boutiques. Uh, and the high yeah. department stores where she would often go on shopping sprees. She was very demanding, but she also bought a lot of shit so they were all about her she <laughs> right she would spend 10 she would literally spend tens of thousands of dollars on single shopping sprees and and the thing is nobody nobody really thought a whole lot about it uh it, like it, it didn't seem out of character or, or out of line or that she was spending more than it, it, no nobody was like going how how the hell does this woman have all This money because I don't know, Caleb. Did I mention her husband was a doctor with a law degree <laughs> and an MBA? So, yes, yeah, you they, mentioned that they were a hype, and she and she again w- held a very high position at a very prominent company in Milwaukee. In and Milwaukee, so, yeah. mm-hmm. according to her, she, when people were like, Gosh, how much money do you guys make? She's like, Between the two of us, we make two and a half million dollars a year, and Ooh. she also said that they were both from very wealthy Indian families. Sue even told one story of how Ramesh's father was so powerful that he arranged for them to spend their honeymoon night at the Taj Mahal. And Sue would boast that they didn't even let Princess Diana into the Taj Mahal because apparently India is not so cool with their former colonizers hanging out at their national treasures, uh, that's under. I mean, fair, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. And to fair. think about it, I mean, even the Queen of England had to let Princess Diana in, but not the Indian government with the Taj Mahal. So, uh, so that's that's a pretty big damn deal. Uh, pretty big, de- pretty big deal. Yeah. Very impressive. Very impressive very, story. Very impressive. And again, if you've got if you've got family that's able to let you spend your honeymoon at the Taj Mahal. They're like, oh yeah, of course you're going to buy one of every pair of shoes at our store without trying them on, just making sure we put them in your size and send them to your house, which is exactly what she would do. And it was very clearly conspicuous spending. People, it didn't go unnoticed that she got how much she was spending and these elaborate shopping sprees. And in many cases, the retail salespeople would tell stories of Sue's just erratic purchases where she would just buy things that didn't match. And, and like I said, where she would just say, I want one of every pair of shoes. And then the crazy thing was she didn't want them to be delivered to her house. They just, she'd be Mm -hmm. like, I want to buy one of every pair. Just hang on to it till I come and get them. And she just wouldn't go and pick them up. So the store had to like put a sold tag on, all these boxes of shoes and just keep it in their stock room more or less indefinitely. And in, in one account, there was a owner of a furrier that noted that Sue had far more furs than anyone could possibly wear. I think, uh, Caleb, what I was trying to do like some mental math of how many furs she had. Wasn't it like 80 something furs? It was a lot of furs. It was It, it was, was a lot fur of furs. for like
1: every It was a lot of I think maybe close to one fur for every day of winter.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> every cold day. I mean, it's Milwaukee. So it's it pretty gets cold. damn cold. Pretty damn yeah. cold. Yeah, for sure. Good point. She Milwaukee it winters. Milwaukee it was, winters. She, right. They were It wasn't It wasn't extravagance. It was it was like j- as as Jim Carrey Greg. said in the in the uh, in the motion picture, masterpiece, Dumb and Dumber, just the basics. <laughs> just. So Sue was doing all this stuff. But meanwhile, back at the factory, Michael Koss, her boss, the CEO, kept accumulating job titles. This, so he was the, the founder's kid. He's the new CEO, but he's not just the CEO. He's also the vice chairman. He's also the president. He's also the COO and he's also the CFO. He's the CEO, COO, CFO, chairman, sorry, vice chairman and president. The guy's got five titles. That's why it was very clear that, that Sue was the de facto CFO because nobody can do all those jobs. And also Michael Koss, like his dad was not formally trained in business. He, what, he anthropology was that his degree
1: correctamundo
0: yeah so that's usually not you know maybe you got an anthropology degree and then got your mba after that but not michael cost he's just anthropology and that's the end of (laughs) that story yeah Yeah. so uh but he but like i said he was holding five different positions his brother john 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 cost jr and his brother-in-law michael moore not the movie director. They also held leadership roles in the Koss uh, company, and given the family's earlier experience with guiding the company through bankruptcy, it, this this really just plays into that same thing we talked about: of we're only we're going to do this ourselves, and we're not going to trust the outsiders. We trust each other, and that's it. They wanted a tightly controlled company, and they had a tightly controlled company. But Caleb Koss was still a public company. Which means, as a public company, as we know, that there's lots and lots of rules that apply lots and lots of red tape that public companies have to cut through and abide by. And uh, our story has now progressed into the 2000s. And as many of our listeners know, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act was passed in 2002. So those rules applied to costs since they were a public company, but... The other thing to keep in mind is that Cos was still a pretty small public company. They had less than fifty yep. million dollars in annual revenue, and so because of that, they didn't have to they didn't have to worry about some of the more onerous aspects of the Sarbanes Oxley Act. Specifically, their auditor did not have to audit or issue an audit opinion about Koss's internal controls over financial reporting, which was a big damn deal and a huge part of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. But again, right. they kind of fell underneath the threshold and didn't have to have those, that aspect of their company audited. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by Rubook Creative. Many of the frauds we talk about on this show usually have some kind of creative accounting involved. But if you want to see truly creative accounting in a non-fraudulent way, you need to check out Rubook Creative. Rubook Creative has dozens of accounting-themed greeting cards, stickers, and other gifts for accountants, including cards designed by yours truly, me, Greg Kite. You knew that I could host a podcast, but you probably didn't know that I designed greeting cards. Ruba Creative cards are great for all accounting occasions, including busy season, taking the CPA exam, luring back employees who quit, baby showers, retirement, and much, much more. Ruba Creative even has children's books for all the very young future CPAs in your life. If you want to delight all your accounting friends on their next card-worthy occasion, and get 10% off your orders by using promo code OMY oh at checkout, head on over to omyfraud.promo oh slash rubook. That's omyfraud.promo oh forward slash R-U-B-O-O-K.
1: In late 2009, American Express contacted the Cost Corporation to inform them that large amounts were being paid from one of their bank accounts to a personal credit card account. What? The account holder? Who? Sujata Sachdeva. You gotta be fucking kidding me. <laughs> the downfall was swift. <laughs> Sue was immediately fired, and Cost notified all the relevant stakeholders immediately. In early 2010, when the FBI announced an indictment, Charging Sue with six counts of wire fraud, the details showed six transactions from September, October, and December 2009 that totaled nearly three million dollars. Wow! The indictment further alleged that Sachdeva directed funds from one cost account in Chicago to another in Milwaukee, where she funded numerous cashier's checks, cashier's checks that she used to pay for personal expenses. Sue also issued numerous checks to petty cash, which she had subordinates submit. At Costa's Milwaukee bank account to obtain cash, and she conferred her traveler's checks issued by Koss for her own personal use. All told, the indictment alleged that Sue had embezzled more than $31 million. She was able to conceal uh, her fraud by making fraudulent entries in Costa's books and directing two of her subordinates, Julie Mulvaney and Tracy Malone, to also make fraudulent entries and disguise them as legitimate transactions, but also to conceal them from cost management and the company's auditor, Grant Thornton. Sue revealed later that it was Grant Thornton whom she feared would discover her. Quote, every time they walked in, I'd say, this is it, they're gonna catch me.
0: Sue Sue was interesting because a lot of the mindset I that I hear from her upon getting caught it sounds a lot like Nathan Muller in the ING case that we did where they were just yep. like, yeah, this is, this is stupid and I am ab- I'm 100% going to get caught. It's just a matter of time. So that's a really weird, it, it's, a, it's an interesting theme that we're starting to see with some of these embezzlement cases. Indeed. The
1: indictment also include a forfeiture notice for many of Sue's possessions, including her house, her Mercedes, clothing, jewelry, art. Both at our home, at our office, and in storage at several boutiques, among countless other items. If you want an exhaustive detail, please (laughs) go into the show notes and read all you like because there's a lot. And it's fun. It is pretty fun. It's pretty fun. The yeah. Milwaukee Magazine article reported that the FBI would later remove, quote, 461 boxes of shoes, 65 racks of clothing, and at least 50 plastic storage containers, statues, paintings, Waterford crystal, Louis Vuitton and Canyon luggage, crystal vases, chandeliers, glassware, and 71 furs. 71. Uh, I'm glad 71. we got to the bottom of that. There we go. So short of short of an entire winter's worth of furs. Right. Um, right. All that stuff that
0: I just itemized. That
1: came from one storage unit,
0: right? <laughs> and it's it's one of the things that was crazy about what they were taking from Sue was that so much, especially when we're talking about the clothing, so many of the so much of the clothing still had the tags on it. She hadn't, I mean, obviously the stuff that they got from the boutiques, that's what we were talking about where she would buy it and just say, Hey, I'll come get it later. And then she just Mm -hmm. never came and got it. So obviously that stuff hadn't been worn, but even a lot of the stuff that made it to her home had never been worn. She was just buying stuff to buy it. And and yeah, again, very conspicuous consumption is what we're looking at here.
1: Yeah. And if you read, if you read the reporting around this, it it was became, it was, it was clear that she was hiding a lot of this stuff from Ramesh, her husband. Yeah. Yeah. And so she would, if she was getting stuff delivered to the house, she would go through all the stuff and she would uh, either, you know, um, send it off or she would put it away or and she would have somebody break down all the boxes for her. It would all be gone in time so that by the time he got home, he was, he, he had no idea what was going on. And so it was, it was also, it was, it was. It was it was conspicuous, but it was also kind of furtive, at least in the context okay. of her family yeah. life, her personal yeah. life.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She definitely they and and one of the did you read the the article where it, it went into some depths just about how she and her husband for years were living in different bedrooms and different floors of their house and yeah. it, that it, it was pretty clear that this was not a, a real close uh, relationship that they had, and that there was a lot of fighting that happened about her shopping patterns and and again, I mean, I think part of it was for her to conceal her embezzlement, but also part of it to avoid a fight that yeah, she she tried to not have any of the stuff delivered when he was home. and, and I, my understanding too is that's why she would ask so many of the stores to hang on to it for because she she was mm. afraid that it'd get delivered at an inopportune time for her to uh, maintain her appearances. When reporters started looking into the story, it became evident fairly quickly that management
1: oversight at cost was virtually non-existent. As we alluded to earlier, Michael Koss had lots of job titles. How many, Greg? Five, it was five. (laughs) Five, five very important job titles, right? Yep. And so you wouldn't be crazy to think that that's kind of crazy. Yeah, According to a Securities and Exchange Commission complaint against both Koss Corporation and Michael Koss, part of the company's internal control policies required Michael Koss to, quote, approve invoices of $5,000 or more for uh, for payment. This, as we've noted, did not prevent Sue from making extremely large payments on her American Express card or issuing cashier's checks that she could then spend however she liked. To make matters only slightly worse, the SEC complaint notes that the company's, quote, computerized accounting systems were almost 30 years old, and access to the accounting systems could not be locked at the end of the month, and there was no audit trail, end of quote. Uh, this allowed Sue to manipulate, either directly or through her subordinates, the accounting after the books were closed, which was supposed to require Michael Koss's approval. So, Greg, some pretty critical mm-hmm. internal controls uh, were, were supposedly in place, but- we're not, we're not, uh, practiced.
0: Yeah. And, and just a little, uh, from my own personal experience at my business, at one point the board of directors got together and they were like, Hey, every check that's over a certain amount needs to have two signatures. And we quickly found out that that was very impractical because we, send monthly distributions of the same amount every month to certain owners that and each of those were over $10,000 and it was all done through ACH. So it's like, yeah, that's not we we don't ha- we don't have that and there's no way to like enforce that internal control and it was impractical for us. So we just it, we we never did it and I think it went back to another board meeting was like, yeah, we can't do this and they're like, okay, don't do it. So uh so it is really easy for L- like these seem like well-intentioned plans yep. for internal controls, but for busy people and a small staff, a lot of times it's just easy to go, "Yeah, we're just not we j- we just don't do that. We're supposed to, yeah, we but d- we just don't." <laughs> right. So, and which is sucks, but that's that's how that's how the real world works, especially again with you know with small businesses, lean right. businesses,
1: and, and in the auditing parlance, that might be considered. A material weakness. It would
0: absolutely be.
1: <laughs> now, this may uh, not. This may not come as a surprise. By one account, at least, Michael Koss was very dismissive about the need for an assessment of the company's internal controls under Sarbanes-Oxley. Yeah. In an article in Family Business Magazine from 2007. Michael Koss quoted, quote, it's annoying having to deal with this extra layer of bureaucracy. Small companies like ours are spending hours in auditing committees that would be better spent on strategic planning, end mm-hmm. quote. Yep. For what it's worth, there was some debate about whether being a public company was in the company's best interests. So remember we said Koss went public in you know the late 60s. But it didn't really go public in a typical IPO, it, you know, in the typical way, which is through an IPO. Koss had acquired a failing company around that time in the 60s, and it ran it as a separate entity for about a year before it merged it into uh, the company. And when that happened, it took over the company's listing and it changed its trading name, and that's how the company went public. So they kind of like, kind of fell bass backwards into it, which yeah. is kind of weird, Well, uh, it- but-
0: it is, but it's, I mean, isn't that exactly what a SPAC is now?
1: It's that feel, it sounded, when I was reading that, it's like, it sounded kind of very SPAC-esque. Right. Yes.
0: But it, I want to say it was a SPAC before they came up with the term SPAC, and it was a reverse merger before they came up with the term reverse right. merger. But right. it was still something that you could do and that they did. And and in this case, it doesn't seem nefarious. It just seems like... right. Like you said, as they a just, practi- it seemed it seemed practical probably at yeah, the time. They, pro- they probably they acqu- I bet you they acquired that other company for good reasons and not yeah. just to be listed on the stock exchange. And then after they were like, oh, we can do this. Well, let's just do that. Yeah, and then
1: they did it. Yeah, yeah. Michael, Koss, so Michael Koss didn't you know think being public was all it was cracked up to be. Whereas his dad, John, had more mixed feelings. Like John Koss, in that article, he was, he kind of said you know that he, you know, it, it it allowed him to raise money when they needed to, and it, it instilled some corporate discipline into the business. Because remember, you know, John John Koss, the founder, nor his son, none of these they none of them went to business school. They they yeah. really did just kind of like figure this out as they went along, and so. You know, if 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 you if you're if you've been doing this business for a long time, at that point it'd been it hadn't been quite ten years, I suppose, when they went public. But he probably thought, oh, the rules that they have here about board members or whatever or governance rules they had in place. They thought, oh, we're not doing any of this stuff. Maybe we should be doing some of that stuff. Yeah. So like you you can kind of like see both sides of it, I suppose. Like if you put yourself in their shoes, right? Like this family business, they want to run it close. You can see why there would be kind of mixed feelings about it.
0: Absolutely, and I I think that even plays into what we were talking about before about sort of the inferiority complex, where it's like it's like we don't have official training, but the big boys do it this way, so we're going to do it that way too, and yeah. and we're we're kind of forced to do it that way, and that feels right. So I yeah. I absolutely understand where where the founder was coming in, but I also get where the Where the next generation was like, yeah, we don't really need this stuff. It's a little bit bureaucratic and a little bit of, you know, make work sort of feel to it. So I I get both sides of that argument. So ultimately, you know, you got
1: the small cost is a small public company and they had they had the ability to opt out of more of these more stringent requirements under Sarbanes-Oxley.
0: And that's what they did. In late July 2010, Sue Satsdava pleaded guilty to six charges of wire fraud. The final tally of the amount stolen, Caleb, was over $34 million. And at that hearing, where Sue pleaded guilty, she did express remorse for the, quote, pain and public embarrassment that she caused her husband and her two young children as well as, quote, the harm she caused to her employer and the company's shareholders, her colleagues, and her friends. She was sentenced to 11 years in prison, and that was back in November of 2010. And in in addition to the criminal charges, in this case, the SEC filed civil charges against Sue and Julie Mulvaney, one of her henchmen, uh, and that (laughs) happened in August of 2010. And among the penalties... Deva was permanently barred from serving as a public company officer or director. Totally makes sense that that would, that seems like a no brainer in terms of what would yeah. happen to her. The SEC also filed civil charges against Michael Koss and against the Koss Corporation in October of 2011 for preparing materially inaccurate financial statements and having a lack of adequate internal controls, uh, which, Caleb, if I'm thinking about that right, that actually also is a ramification of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act because the, mm-hmm. the CEO has to certify the financial statements. Even if he didn't prepare them, he's got to yep. sign his name saying, yep, these are good. And CFO that too. Was the, and it just so happens and the CFO,
1: that in this case, that was the same person. <laughs> that was him. That
0: was him both times. Yeah. So he signed <laughs> both of those lines. So he was like, yep, yep, these are right. And I also think these are right. And they were wrong. And that resulted in in a, a civil suit uh, against yep. him and his company. And, and obviously, even though it wasn't required that their internal controls were – that they expressed an audit opinion on the internal controls, that still was something that they were required to keep up even though they weren't being audited. So Michael Koss was required to reimburse the company with his cash and stock bonuses for the years of 2008, 2009, and 2010 because he did such a piss poor job. Of oversight <laughs> and uh costs also in addition to all that stuff, they settled a class action lawsuit with their investors and they had to pay out uh, a million bucks on that ca- class action lawsuit but here's the here's the other side of that coin is that costs wasn't the only they didn't do all the screwing they also got screwed <laughs> so yes. Cost costs also they got sued by all these people, but then they in turn sued who, of course, their auditor Grant Thornton. Yes, uh, they sued him for negligence, and they won, and they received eight point five million dollars from Grant Thornton. Now, keep in mind, technically, that,
1: technically a settlement. I don't think they went to court actually.
0: Oh yeah, it, yeah, it was a settlement. Yep, good point. Um, but also keep in mind that. Uh, sue had stolen 34 million dollars from him so eight and a half does i mean it it's it makes more than a dent in it but it still doesn't come anywhere near making them whole uh they also uh, sued american express for not because and if you remember american express was the ones who notified him that said hey uh by the way you might want to know we're seeing some weird transactions here so they sued American Express for not telling them about the weird transaction sooner. And and they, they also uh received three million dollars from that legal action that they took against American Express. And finally the company also recouped the the, the few million dollars that they could just from the clawing back Sue's assets, her furs to as <laughs> the seventy one furs. The seventy one furs and other items. And they so they got a few million bucks from that. So we're probably talking less than fifteen thousand dollars that they were able to recoup from this three thirty-four million dollar loss that they had. That doesn't include the the suits that were filed against them.
1: One thing that I will uh, also note here is that <clears throat> I don't think we've mentioned it previously, but supposedly this that Sue started her fraud in about nineteen ninety seven, about five years five years on from when she was hired. And so yeah. that means she carried it on for about 12 years. It is interesting that American Express got off so lightly if they only have to pay three, because if she was if she was charging all that stuff onto her American Express card, and she was doing it presumably more than just the four years that is part of the indictment, you would think that they would have been on the hook for a little bit more than that. But <clears throat> maybe, maybe not, I don't know. But I just I just thought that was an interesting one that American Express got
0: off light compared
1: to say Grant Thornton,
0: which is interesting because I was thinking the exact opposite. Where oh, I thought it was weird tell. that they were, I thought it was weird they were able to get three million out of American American Express when American Express was doing the job that Casa's internal controls were supposed to do. I don't I don't know how True. American Express Fair. is like expected to be the watchdog of who their payments were being made to on the credit cards that they issued to this company that should had controls over their damn credit cards. So instead, so American Express is like, Hey, just thought you might want to know that some of these don't look quite right. And then they're like, God damn it. Why didn't you tell us we were fucking this up years ago? You sons of bitches. Why didn't you tell us that we were piss poor at our job long ago because we've been horrible at this for decades and just now you're telling us shame on you that's that's where my mind went
1: (laughs) i like that i like that it went there it's been it's been a little while since this all went down and cost corporation has more or less recovered it's still a public company Michael Koss is still the president and CEO. Uh, The company still only has a few dozen employees, according to its most recent 10K filing. Its current auditor is Whiffly. The firm has served as their auditor since 2019. Koss is still considered a small company for public reporting purposes, and therefore, their audit firm doesn't express an opinion on internal controls over financial reporting. They
0: can't learn their goddamn lesson. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh,
1: Sue was released from prison in 2017 after serving about six years of her sentence. According to a report in the Milwaukee journal Sentinel, she was able to reduce her sentence 15% through good behavior and also 25% for helping authorities in the prosecution of two people who stole jewelry that she had purchased with stolen costs funds. And here's a fun little coda postscript mm-hmm. whatever hey, yeah in january 2021 costs got swept up in some of this meme stock mania that was going oh, on uh uh-huh. it was one of the many companies whose stock was bid up by retail investors you oh, know, the, it, so kind
0: of like robin hood and GameStop.
1: GameStop, yep that kind yeah, of stuff yeah se filings sec filings reported that the executives and directors of the company sold 40 million in stock Which uh, at the time was more than the company's total value (laughs) at the end of 2020.
0: Gotcha. So they, so they, yeah. So when we're talking ups and downs, they had a couple of downs, but this was just a random bit of dumb luck that uh,
1: a little bit of a
0: yeah yeah a little bit of a bump. So yeah, good. John C. Could yeah. I don't know what. It's
1: good to be lucky. Yeah, you know, it is good point. Yeah. John C. cost the founder of Cost, died in late 2021 at the age of 91. Way to way to bring it down at the end, yeah, Caleb. It's a nice it's a nice segue out. So, Greg, did we learn anything?
0: I believe that we did, Caleb. Um, oh, good. What? So, so one of the things it's. It's like old and it's dumb and it's boring to talk about how these people who perpetrate these frauds live beyond their means. That's the number one behavioral yep. red flag of fraud, blah, blah, blah. We all know that. What I do think is way more interesting is this theme that I'm seeing over these different frauds that we've covered uh, that these people who are embezzling millions of dollars are also giving tons of that money to charity. Do you? Do you? Have you seen this as a as a recurring thing that came up for us? Over Absolutely. Twenty yes. something episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It's it's very clear here that that uh, Sue Sachdava was super into charities. We also saw that in the fruitcake fraud with Sandy Jenkins and his wife that they really felt like they became a part of the upper echelon of their community when they were Mm -hmm. able to start giving lots of money to charities. We also saw it in a weird way with the mutual benefits corporation, because they were, they were trying to position themselves as helping people who were suffering from AIDS. And so they did a lot of charitable work for AIDS research and AIDS foundations. And so, so this whole idea of giving, giving money to charities when you're in the process of just ripping people off, huge is something that we've seen over and over again. And so Caleb here, I've developed a theory about this and it has three parts. Oh, I'm excited. The the first part is, is kind of what I alluded to when I was uh, talking about Sandy Jenkins and the fruitcake fraud is that only the truly wealthy give tons of money to charities so these people who are stealing tax all this money, <laughs> tax breaks for your for your uh, your money laundering. Yeah, that's yeah. You don't have to launder as hard, but but no, I, it's not so much the tax breaks. It's that these people who are stealing all this money, they want to be seen as truly wealthy, and so hmm. because of that, they start hanging out with truly wealthy people and in truly wealthy circles of people, and so. They want to fit in and they want to play this part of the life that they've dreamed of. So they look around and go, what do all these other people do? Oh, they give to charities and they drink, they drink champagne and wear ball gowns at these fancy charity events and give tons of money and everybody oohs and aahs at them. We're going to do that too. So that's part of it is they want to achieve this certain status and giving to charities helps them achieve that. Make sense so far?
1: So far, so good.
0: Good. Second thing in this theory is that charitable giving serves another purpose. And that is the purpose of salving one's conscience. So, and this, again, this should make perfect sense. You're doing something bad, but, and you know, it's bad, but then you can say, but, but look, I'm also doing this other thing. That's good. So that absolves me of at least some of the shitty stuff that I've done uh, because of this good stuff that I'm also doing. So that's the second part. The third part, though, is that giving to charities serves the purpose of subterfuge. subterfuge. Uh, it's helping to camouflage these people's actions because people don't suspect that a thief is giving tons and tons of money to charity. It'd be like, hey, right. h- how could you even think I'm stealing from costs? I organized a fundraiser so that his son wouldn't shit his pants so much. And... We even there's even a quote from the Milwaukee Magazine article that we read that said that this was one of Sue's friends who said uh every time I thought I smelled a rat that something didn't seem right I'd go to one of those events and think I must be wrong because she's a pillar of the community so it did work as as helping like throw people off their scent for doing these these massive embezzlement schemes
1: Yep one thing I would point out and i think it goes to your earlier point about the perception that the charity or the wealth i guess the 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 perception that the wealth kind of conveyed you know all those stories that sue told about her family being wealthy and her husband's f- family being wealthy and influential yeah it won't surprise anyone to learn that that was all bullshit 100% bullshit she was lying, about, she was, she was lying <laughs> about all that stuff yeah to ma- to 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 the extent that the, po- the Taj Mahal does not have lodging accommodations. Right. It's a fucking tomb. It's not. <laughs> right. People right. don't sleep there. Yeah. They go there to rest forever. Yeah.
0: <laughs> which is which is kind of ballsy that she I know. That out there. Because somebody could be like, oh my goodness, let me see if I can schedule my honeymoon. At the- oh, what? Oh. <laughs> oh, I have to die to go there? <laughs> okay, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. And even, <laughs> even the fact that her, her parents, they... You know, I don't think anybody like did a a deep dive into her parents' finances, but just a you know kind of a a look at the just a preliminary look. It was pretty clear that they were not upper echelon Indian citizens in terms of their wealth. So right, um, Right. so yeah, the appearances was a big damn deal for Sue and people.
1: But here's the thing. Here's the thing, though. People, I think the the lesson for people to consider is that. You can make up these kind of audacious lies yeah. and people will fucking believe it. Yeah. yep, They'll believe it. Yeah. You don't, it, it they, no, like you, you quoted, you quoted one of the friends or acquaintances or whatever. I'm like, eh, there's, there's something not quite right here. And then she sees her in action. She's like, Oh no, she's a pillar of the community. And right. like her mind is totally changed again. Right. She, she didn't think to question it. Once she saw the, the perception, what she saw on the surface caused her to to doubt her own kind of instincts right
0: well and even and even the thing that i've that i've realized is that people are looking for they're looking for an answer but yeah m- most people for the sake of public appearances and, and, and for the sake of their relationship and for the sake of conflict avoidance they're not gonna dig deeper. So if it's like, how do you have all the money to go on eighty-five thousand dollar one-day shopping sprees? <laughs> and they go, Oh, me and my husband make a combined two and a half million dollars every year. So this is this is not that big of a deal for us. And then you go, you're not gonna say, Oh, really? Can I see your W-2s? Okay, <laughs> <laughs> can I see a copy yeah. of your tax? You don't you what's yeah. the next question after that? It's like and and even as you know, my parents left me a lot of money. Oh, really? How much estate tax did they have to pay? You know, you don't. Yeah. There's no follow-up question. You ask. You ask the question. They give a confident response, and that's the end of the story. Or else you look like you're a a prying, uh, you know, neighbor, a nosy
1: person. And yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. So people aren't going to do that. So here's the other thing that stuck out to me from this case was also uh the the quote that that you read of Michael Koss where he said. Uh, small companies like ours are spending hours in auditing committees that would better be spent on strategic planning. And mm-hmm. what stuck out to me for that? Cause as much as we talk about fraud and we talk about ways that people can be detecting it earlier and preventing it, uh, Michael Koss isn't wrong it, it, right. because he, he's right. Uh, all that stuff, auditing is non-value added. Internal auditing is non-value added. All this stuff that's all of the uh, red tape, all of the bureaucracy that's imposed on people through uh, different laws and things of this nature, it's all non-value added activities. Nobody's ever gotten a loan from the bank with a business proposal that just said, our mission is to not let anybody ever steal from us. That's not that's not a business model. And right. if we look at costs, their strategy, was good enough that it saved them from a 34 million dollar embezzlement it also helped them pull themselves out of chapter 11 bankruptcy they had strategy and stra- these other things came along and they knocked them down but it was the strategy it was their business acumen it was their the, it was their core of vision values and mission that brought them through and that so so i'm going to say That even though this entire podcast is about fraud, it's not not the be-all, end-all of
1: business. It's funny that that's actually, I mean, because I agree with you, right? You hear about it all the time, even like uh, Elizabeth Holmes, right? With Theranos. Uh Like there's all these wealthy investors that put money with her, you know, like whoever, like they put a million, a hundred million dollars with Theranos and it turns out to be complete, a complete fabrication, right? Com- yeah. A complete yeah. fraud. But to these investors, they would be seen as they would have been seen as fools had they not got in on it. And the hundred million right. is just gone. You know, they 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 invest that mm-hmm. kind of they, they lose that kind of money all the time investing in businesses. But because this was a fraud, like to them, mm-hmm. the the bigger mistake would to have not taken the chance on it. And oh, this right. just turned out to be a fraud no big deal. It failed. Other businesses fail. This just so happened to fail because of fraud.
0: Right. And they write it off and they move on. Yeah. Right. And, and that's why I, I mean, we, we sort of stumbled onto the, the title of this episode, uh, just because we thought it was, it was funny, but it's, it's oddly apropos for what we're talking about right here. The, the cost of doing business, the, the ACFE, their presumption based on their research and what they see is that the average business loses 5% of its revenue to fraud and that's that's well known and and well diffused information and so being being defrauded is really just part of being in business as a matter of fact i know that there's certain certain retail companies that every in their budget they budget for shoplifting so it's the same, yep. it's the same kind of thing where you when you go into business, you gotta go, hey, there's a risk of us being defrauded. We need to make sure that this business kicks ass so that even if that does happen to us, we can we we will we will live on it. Now, am I saying so therefore ditch all internal controls, ditch all auditing because you really your strategy is gonna no, and of course I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is that there definitely has to be a balance where you're not just spending all day making sure nobody's s- stealing money from you. At some point, there's a cost benefit where you have to say, okay, we're going to we're gonna, we're gonna spend our time on this strategy, and we've got to trust some people with our finances, and that's going to put it at, at us, uh, us at risk. There's no company that's completely immune from fraud, so have a, good, have a damn good strategy. And that's that that's that's what I say, and prove me wrong that strategy isn't more important than fraud prevention.
1: I can't. Okay.
0: Good. Good. I didn't yeah. think so. I mean, yeah. oh, did you want
1: debate? I don't know. I don't I, no. I think I probably no. yeah, I I, I I pretty much agree with you. I mean, I, I wish I could prove you wrong, but I but just judging by what we see in the marketplace right now and the way companies you know like I said, the Theranos seems like a good example. And I think there's other examples where you look, your your job is to take a risk in in investing in these businesses. And if you miss those opportunities, you're in more trouble because what if it, what if it goes to the moon and you make a, a jillion dollars? Yeah. yeah right. But if you take a risk on it, if you take a hundred million dollar risk on it, it turns out to be a fraud and you don't get a single dollar back. It's like, well, businesses fail all the time. This one just so happened to fail to fraud, fail because of fraud. Right. And, and I the think the it's one.
0: interesting. I think it's interesting in this case in particular is that costs had to go into chapter 11 bankruptcy from poor management. <laughs> right. They didn't have to go into chapter eleven bankruptcy from the thirty four million dollar fraud that was That's right. perpetrated against them. So again, I think that just backs up my my theory that strategy is just way more important than pro- than fraud prevention. But again, you gotta you gotta make sure, you know, there's uh, w- w- what, what ideally, do you say. Ideally uh, you don't uh, let pe- ideally you
1: don't let people steal from you.
0: Yeah, and moderation in all things. Make sure you <laughs> make sure you have, you know, strategy and <laughs> and fraud prevention uh, yeah. involved in your business.
1: So Greg, my um the thing that I'm thinking about and wondering about after this about uh, about this story is the family business. Do you think can you is the van, is the family business? Is it is it something that people should pursue it's seen in a lot of ways when we when we look at you know kind of the the story of costs they you know the something that they went through in the 1980s had a big impact on what happened to them in some in some following decades and and you know not a great outcome to have 34 million dollars taken from you right but but they they were they, they they were just doing what they thought was right the right way to run that business now i guess my question is are they right or are they wrong and i mean are family businesses just too risky because of kind of the isolationist or kind of the kind of inward looking kind of nature
0: of how a lot of those businesses are run i'm just wondering if what you think about that i i I'd say we can't dismiss family businesses uh, categorically because I think that Koss is actually a great story of a very successful family business. And it's it's really kind of an American dream story where you got these people that don't have the formal education that, that did follow, you know, the, uh, John Koss Sr. followed his passions about music to end up uh, inventing stereophones and became world-class you know, a market leader in what he was creating. And yeah, mm-hmm. did they did they get their ass handed to him? Yeah, a couple of times very clearly, but they continued in, uh, to have a, a company that weathered both of those storms and was still profitable, and at the end of the day had something that they could be proud of. So I, I don't think that we should dismiss them uh, out of hand. As a matter of fact, I think this is an example that they can be very successful. Uh, but I have to temper that by me saying, "Will I have a family business. Hell no. And not in a million really? years. And it's so only, then what? And you wouldn't either. No, I, I, I already tried. That's not right. That's not happening again. Yep.
1: So what is the lesson you think? So if there's people out there listening who either advise family businesses or are part of a family business. So then what's the lesson to take away from this particular story?
0: You think uh, I, I think the the lesson is absolutely know your limitations. Because they, it, Michael Koss, uh, should not have been the CFO of this company with mm-hmm. no formal background in accounting. If you're, po- I don't know how that's even possible that you CFO. It see, it seems like the Sarbanes Oxley Act maybe had a major flaw in that they didn't require a CFO well, to have I think. An accounting background,
1: if I may, if I may, nerd n- nerd you out for a minute. I believe. Please the the credit or the, the the credential requirement for CFOs that came later. So I think okay. Michael Coss was probably CFO before because I think Sarbanes Oxley actually says something about that. I Yeah, I thought again, it did too. Audi- the audience the audience will keep us honest. But my yeah. my hunch is that Michael Coss was probably had that title prior to the credential requirement, you know, mandated by law. And they probably got grandfathered in. That's my hunch, right? Right. But you're right, like it's, and so like there's a lot of in 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 the research that we did, I read a lot of accounts where people were second guessing him because he had an anthropology degree. And I'm like, that's fucking stupid. Like there's plenty of people who come up in businesses that don't have degrees at all and run mm-hmm. incredibly successful businesses. And there's people <laughs> right. that don't have accounting that don't have accounting backgrounds that understand that understand finance and accounting just fine. Okay. Yeah. So let's yep. not kid ourselves about the kind of that that he needed a BS and an MS in accounting or a finance degree to be a CFO. There's plenty of CFOs who have who have managed to do those jobs without that background. Having said that, he also had four other titles and he had no business being the CFO. (laughs) Right. You know, so
0: so Yeah. And so I think as you
1: point out, like the limit the the big lesson here is like in a family owned business that's tightly held like this and tightly run, you can't you you still can't do it all
0: right. But and again, and I, you know, and, and just to absolutely muddy the waters, that may be exactly <laughs> why he hired Sue to come on right. his team is to go. I am the CFO, but I need an expert to come in and do this. But then there, you know, there, there's also. Yeah. So I guess it's a know your limitations, but also make sure you're checking on people who are in in, in control of the, the money because they can take it. Well, that's it for this episode. And remember, if you're going to defraud a family business, try to defraud one where one family member has five job titles. And also remember, if you work
1: in a family business and have five job titles, you may need to hire a few more family members.
0: If you want to drop us a line, Send us an email at ohmyfraud at earmarkcpe.com. Caleb, where can people find you out there on the internet?
1: I'm on Twitter, still, at CNewquist, and on LinkedIn, backslash Caleb Newquist. Greg, where are
0: you? Same thing. Uh, I'm pretty much all the social handles. I'm at Greg Kite and uh, LinkedIn. I'm also backslash Greg Kite. It's very easy. Oh, My Fraud is written by Greg Kite and myself.
1: Our producer is Zach Frank. If you like the show, leave us a review or share it with a friend. Rating the show and leaving reviews helps other people find the podcast. So do that. Also, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And for the accountants out there, if you listen to the podcast on Earmark, you can earn free C P E. Great. It's
0: it's fantastic. I've been it's using fantastic. the Earmark app regularly to binge my cpe before the end of the year and it's a wonderful piece of technology highly recommend five stars
1: join us next time for more avarice swindlers and scams from stories that will make you say oh Oh my fraud caleb just say it
0: faster you say it way too fucking slow i say it too slow yes you say it too slow you say not that i just say oh my fraud just say it like that oh my fraud there you go oh my fraud there it is (laughs) oh my fraud